this is a movie about the kind of struggle between the youth and the adults and the cynicism of the adults and the willfulness to change, to revolution that inhabits these children. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, two young people with unusual appetites meet and fall in love in director Luca Guadagnino's horror romance, Bones and All. The film tells the story of Marin, a young woman on the margins of society, and Lee, a disenfranchised drifter, who embark on an odyssey through the backroads of America and their own cannibalistic natures. However, despite their best efforts, all roads lead back to their terrifying pasts. In addition to Bones and All, Guadagnino's other directorial credits include the feature films Suspiria, Call Me By Your Name, and I Am Love, the documentaries Salvatore, Shoemaker of Dreams, and Bertolucci on Bertolucci, and episodes of the series We Are Who We Are. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Juananino spoke with director John Krakidis about filming Bones and All. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Okay, I don't want to make you blush, Luca, but I hope all of you get the chance to sit across from one of your favorite filmmakers whose continued dedication to an evolution of his craft are unparalleled and who inspires you to reach for greatness in your own work. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you so much. I love this film, and I was telling Luca the first time, I saw it twice, and I implore all of you to see it a second time. The first time I saw it, my hand was about five inches from my face, ready to cover my eyes at any given moment. And the second time I saw it, my hand went down, and I started seeing what seemed sensationalistic or potentially terrifying the first time as incredibly moving and heartbreaking, because your two leads just felt like any young adult's who didn't fit in with their families, who are cast out, just trying to find themselves, trying to find the meaning of everything, of love, and to not be lonely. And I was surprised at how I could just let that go. And I think that's a testament to you and your work with them and making such three-dimensional characters. And I'm, I'm guess, was that your intention? When I read the script uh, um, that had been given to me by Dave Kajanek, the writer, um, what struck what, what strike on me was these characters, the utmost loneliness they were kind of like doomed to face. This idea that they were having, in a sense, a sort of void in front of them, a possible a sort of like no future for them. And yet when they, they, they found one another, they tried to overcome whatever is the kind of like um, trouble they can get from outside, but mostly what they can get from inside. So in a way, I, the answer is yes. Now, you and David have worked together three times, right? And more because we're now working on something else, yes. So did David, when he adapted this, this is from a famous YA book, correct? Yes. Did he 
know that he was doing this for you? Was he trying to secretly convince you? I guess so, because I, he reminded me that he sent me the book, but I was, I might have been doing uh, We Are Who We Are, my TV show for HBO, and I might have basically piled up the book on other books and then I forgot about it. And then two years later, he called me and said, I did, I have the script, would you read it? That's how it went. And I think all of us as directors, there's nothing better than that moment when you read a script and you realize, oh my God, I need to spend the next two to five years of my life making this thing. Did you have that feeling after you read the draft for the first time? Well, I'm a little bit restless and and I don't like development, as I think everyone here doesn't, right? It's a disaster. So like I tend to be like very practical and if something I see that can happen quite briskly, I, I, I... I may embrace it. In this case, not only the script was really good and and so there was, you know, like, you, of course, when you, particularly with the script is not really written in with you, but it's been written in general, then you, you have to step in and direct a little bit the script, but that's easy. And also with Dave, as I said, we've been working forever together. So it's a very easy way. But when I read the script, <clears throat> I saw the cast, in particular, I saw Timothy in it. So I, I, I sent the script to him and he, he loved the idea of the character and he had great ideas too for the further development of the character and the movie in itself. So he embraced the project and went on for doing it. And he was available in those dates, which was April, May, June. So it was like easy. We're in October. Let's put it together quickly. And we did it. I hope we're all that lucky in the next year. So was there any rewriting involved? I'm just curious about the way you yeah, and David yeah, worked yeah. together. The first thing was like, the first thing was like that. That I, I remember that script presented Lee as a sort of a protective character to Marin, and it's true that Marin sees in Lee someone that she can bond with to continue her journey of self-discovery. But Timothy was adamant, and I, me too, of course. But that, as much as Marin was kind of lost, Lee was lost as well. And that Maren was protecting Lee as much as Lee was protecting Maren. And actually Maren was protecting Lee more than Lee was protecting Maren. Because, you know, like this guy has a burden and a ghost that is inhabiting him, which is the, the, the way he dealt with his father. Uh, and in general, to your point, this is a movie about the kind of struggle between the youth and the adults and the cynicism of the adults and the... Uh, willfulness to change, to revolution, and and to a utopia that it inhabits these children, these young people. I've heard you say that um, I Am Love, A Bigger Splash, and Call Me By Your Name are your self-described desire trilogy. Does this now make it a desire tetralogy? Well, that was a way out from people saying to me, pigeonholing me about being the director of rich people lounging on the sun, which I hated. <laughs> so I said, it's a desire trilogy. It's not a, a trilogy of rich people. That's why I, I came about with that. But I should become more wise and learn that when you say something, then they, I don't know. People like me do Google and then we find it. No, it's not that. I think every movie I made, it's about desire, I guess. I guess it's something that I, I can see very strongly like it's about, it's it's a very cinematic thing for me to show the moment in which you start to 
condensing within yourself a sense of like lost control because you want somebody else. It's quite strong. And it's very strong in this movie. Um, okay, one thing that I did read, I did a little homework. Um, <laughs> you went on a one-month pilgrimage in the Midwest for this movie. Is that true? Yes, yes, yes. yes. And you kind of went on uh, Marilyn Lee's journey. Yeah, we, 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 I knew in the script there were some places that was real places that were good, they were going through. And so I, I asked um, the great Elliot Tostater, the production designer, great job in this movie, and Arseni Kachatur, the, the director of photography. Why don't we go and we get lost? You and, took all of them with you. And we went. And we did not uh, decide to, cho- to look for locations for the movie. That's hap- that happened afterwards. I just wanted to go and learn the country because I've been coming in America for more than 25 years now. And, but I've been mostly in the, on the coast. Like LA, of course, is like a sort of home for me and New York. And then I've been in New Orleans. I've been in, in Houston, Texas. But I really never really, really, really immersed myself into the middle of the country. And so I, I, I thought it was important, not that you can learn uh, the vastness and the beauty and the profundity of this country in one month, but at least it was a way to kind of like uh, not going for the facile direction, not being driven by location management, but actually by what I knew and understood throughout this immersion. So we went like, like Maren and Lee, all the way to um, um, uh, Nebraska and then we went to Minnesota as well. And did that journey change your vision of the movie or I was hit hard by I was hit hard by uh, how much and I'm coming here with great respect and humbleness, but how much uh, the, the economical system of this country is cruel and how much it really believes in the self-realization of the individual, which is a sort of false promise because society should exist. And I saw a lot of disenfranchisement. And I saw a lot of communities that were really holding together, and yet despite the fact that many of these places have been really abandoned by industry, by capital, and they were like a sort of like in between a sense of wilderness, which is very powerful in America, and a sense of like holding up together, which I think you can see in the movie. A hundred percent. And a lot of people would argue that it was actually Reagan's two presidencies in which that started. Oh, yeah, 100%. So, like, these are fall, you know, remember there was this kind of idea that this was, that the uh, success and powers of Reagan having destroyed the Soviet Union and having given this country two terms of uh, economic growth had, uh, had, had uh, you know, stopped history to be. There was the end of history that was a way of saying it in the 80s which is not true. So we try to, to see the other side of it. But there is a great Barbara Knoppel documentary, Arlan County, USA, oh, yeah. that tells you a lot about that. So I think we, that's where we were coming from. When you make a period film like this, to me it often feels like you're making a film from that era rather than just about that era. This is exactly what I asked myself and my team. Let's make it as if we are there. And then let's not try to um, find a sort of like style about the 80s. 
by the way, we, we, we went through, we knocked at many doors in the Midwest and we asked them kindly to uh, show us their family albums of pictures. And they were really, many people were very generous and we collected, I don't know, 10,000 pictures. And I could see all these images of family, home, home, home pictures of families in the 80s. And you could see there was a very strong bridge, stylistically in a way, from the 50s. It was like um, when Coppola did his great movie, Peggy Sue Got Married. You know, it was a set in the 80s, she goes back in the 50s. There was a sort of like suspension of time and a sort of like belief in the um, kind of uh, success of the 50s post-war, but with the cracks of what happened in the 70s. I'm still imagining you, a production designer, a costume designer, a DP, knocking on people's doors that. and asking them to see their photo well, albums. Well, great assistance, great, great head research. Two wonderful young filmmakers who've been really tremendously helpful in doing this. And then the great, as I said, great production design. One of my favorite sequences in this movie, and I'm wondering if that's what inspired it, I noticed there were a lot of uh, family photographs in the movie. And the first time that we see her eat someone in the film, you cut away to family photos of that woman. And it was haunting, and it brought such an added dimension to the film. And did that come from your exploits and your pilgrimage? Well, I mean... Again, it's a testament on how good was Elliot's team, Marisa Lombardo, the set decorator, and the wonderful Matt Marks, that is the uh, prop master of the movie, 27 when he did the movie. The wisdom of what he brought on the movie was amazing. But <clears throat> so like the way in which we wanted to recreate the life of this, we wanted these two strangers entering the house of this lady and we with them, we, we, I wanted them, I wanted us to feel very precisely the space we were getting in and to try to really be in a way knowledgeable of who was the woman that was someplace upstairs. So that this was, I, I wasn't interested in the shock value of these cannibal act that was going to happen. And more, I was interested in Maren's struggle with an impulse that is, she's trying to, to overcome and the inevitability, the weirdness and eeriness of this strange encounter with this man. And at the same time, this, you know, when you enter a place uh, from light to darkness or the other way around and you take time to put, put things in focus and see things. I wanted that kind of experience. So you see, she sees on the table the last book that Mrs. Harmon was reading before having a, a stroke. She was drinking a tea. You see the kitchen, you see the little decoration. And then when they go upstairs and they finally, she surrendered to the impulse and she and he eats Mrs. Harmon corpse. I thought like, I think once you have seen the moment of that, you don't need to see more. But maybe you want to see who was Mrs. Armon, you know, like what is going to, what is going to remains of Mrs. Armon after the uh, mortal remains will be eaten. And what's, and I thought it was important to see that because it's about what's left in the memory of people, of the people who lived, which is very telling of these two kids who are struggling this death drive. And then the next time I think she sees photos is when she sees photos of him, of Lee, right? Yeah. 
She sees the, the Lee. The child that doesn't exist anymore. Yes. You know, J.M. Barry says two is the end of one in, in Peter Pan. You know? I was incredibly affected by that scene. And I did notice it was Dubliners by James Joyce that she was reading. Yeah, because it was in 1988 when the great masterpiece of John Huston was released, The Dead. So maybe the Mrs. Harmon was doing a book club with some ladies and they want someone said, you know, we should read this book because there is this movie coming out uh, and they were ready to go to see the movie. I hope she went and see the movie before dying. Now, you're... Isn't it a great movie, The Dead by John Huston? I mean, and John Huston was shooting that movie on a dead bed, almost like with the oxygen in the bed. What a movie. When Angelica Huston is on the stairwell and Donald McCann sees the wife and realizes that she has a big secret. Wow. May we all make movies that long. Yes. Um, or maybe not. I mean. On the other side of life, your DP, <laughs> is it true your DP is 29 years old? Now is he? He was 27 when I hired him. Isn't that some of the most stunning cinematography you've seen all year? It's really good. It's really good. We shot in 35 and we taught a lot about William Eggleston, your great artist. And that was our light, like, like light and guidance. But of course, the, the, a lot of, we had a lot of, we were really kind of like amusing ourselves in thinking, should we think of, some great masters of the 70s as if they were filming in the 80s. So we thought about Nestor Almendros and Vilmos Sigmund and Owen Reusman, this trifecta of masters we adore. Uh, how would they see this story and this country from that perspective? That was our, our attitude. And he's great. I mean, Arseni is incredibly talented, hard worker. I like him because like sometimes he's like, it's like, it was like a kid. And so he was making a big, like he was like an enthusiastic and almost um, an impetus of a, of a kid. And maybe sometimes the exposition was wrong in between takes. And I said, the good take we have, it's fine. Let's move on. But <laughs> I, I saw that as a, as a sort of like generosity from his uh, approach. It's, it's going to be one of the great for sure. How do you create, when, especially when you're working with the new DP, like a common language? Do you go through bunches of images together? Do you watch movies together? Or do you kind of just pick tones and emotions and kind of start seeing what they do? And then Because I film in 35 millimeters, I want the light and the color to be definitive when I get the one light rushes that comes to me. It's, the eye is a little business. It's not a big business for me. I don't believe in that. I think it's, you know, I want to do the film on film when I'm filming. I don't want to do an image that then I can paint digitally afterwards. It's, I don't understand it because I'm a, a guy from the last century. So I'm a little bit old fashioned. I'm 51. Uh, so for me, that's really like, uh, it's about that. And so it's, and, 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 and the place commands the light. So I'm never, I'm never like looking for a style or a touch to the cinematography up on top of what the story, the actors, but mostly the space reclaims. So it's quite straightforward in a way. And um, I don't know, I always found them, all my DPs and I having a very lovely conversation. I love particularly the wide shots that were obviously shot from like the back of a truck on a rocky road where you see these beautiful widescapes, wide landscapes shot in film. 
but there's a roughness to it as well. Well, that's, uh, thank kind you for the question the because there has been a lot of conversations about should we put the stabilization and stuff? I said, no, why? They are driving an old truck from Barry. Why they should have a stabilization of it? Yeah, it has to be rough. Well, you tell that exact, those are my favorite shots in the movie. Okay, I will. So the actors in this film, I've noticed... Taylor Russell. Well, Taylor... Okay, let's, let's first talk about Taylor. She's um, indelible and wonderful in this movie. I think, you know, a lot of us saw her in Waves, and she was a revelation in that, but this is the first time we've ever seen her lead a movie. And her performance, she is so natural in front of the camera. It doesn't feel like she can make an artificial move. And what I found so compelling about her character is how immediately you cared about her and she was able to be so compassionate and yet she also had such fury and frustration at the situation she was in. And you don't find many actors who can do both. And I'm wondering my, about your process with her. Did you two create, do you do rehearsal? Did you create the role together? Do you do discussions? Do you play on set? You have many, I mean, the first thing is like, you meet the actor and you see in the actor somebody you want to spend time with. And it's about like being kind of seducted by the actor. And and then that from the other side, I guess the actor has to be seducted by you and has to feel the character. Then there is the script, which I think is a very important part of the process, not for the movie making, but particularly for the actors, in order for them to start having their learning curve about the, uh, the, cast, the character before we actually get together. Then there is the time you spend with them before making the movie. And for me, it's about bonding. It's about like finding a way in which they feel safety and security in the relationship. They know that this is something that in which they could invest all themselves completely. And uh, eventually uh, when we start shooting and we didn't do any rehearsals, but we did, of course, the blocking in most mostly in the beginning of the day of the scenes, then you, 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 you help the actors to fine tune their intuitions, I would say. But it, with, with Taylor, you, I, I met someone who was completely devoted to the character in a way and the movie and myself in order to give everything they could. And she was really like resorting to find this woman, Maren, this girl to, who becomes a woman also within herself, I, I, I think that, like, like Bertolucci always said, the movies were documentaries about the actors making the characters as well as the movies about the stories and the characters. And I believe in that. So in a way, I think the movie captures something that was within these actors. And certainly there was some kind of like force and some sort of... Uh, quest for calmness that was embodying, uh, living into uh, Taylor Russell. And was, what was astonishing, we shot the movie almost in sequence, but what was astonishing is that she created something invisible but inevitable. She made Maren becoming a woman throughout the story that we tell. It's incredible. And I noticed that in this movie uh, you had Timothy, Chloe Sevigny, Michael Stuhlbarg, Andre Holland, 
and Jessica Harper. For those who oh, don't it's know, it's like a theater company because yeah, we made it's like your theater company. You've all worked with all of them before. Times. You must be doing something right. Sorry, I said you must be doing something right. I must be doing something right. They keep wanting to work with you. I love them. Do you like having? Oh, I was gonna. I was gonna ask you that actually. Do you love your actors deeply? I have a very deep affection for them. They know. For instance, like when we did Suspiria and Jessica Harper, who I completely worship forever uh, for her amazing career. She has said, yes, I'm coming to do Anke, the wife of the Professor Klemperer. And then she came. The line, she, the, the role was all in German. And then we started blocking the scene with Lutz Ebersdorf, the actor playing Klemperer, Tilda Swinton. And then we started to block the scene and I saw, I saw her acting this beautiful role in German in a long shot without cuts for like three minutes. And no, no mistakes, nothing, perfection. And, and thinking that she was Susie Banyan in the original Suspiria, I couldn't help myself. I started to cry. I think she knows that I love her so much. All of them. Chloe, I mean, divine. Michael Barr, Michael Stuhlberg, amazing. So we just got the five-minute alert, which means we have time for one or two questions from the crowd. Does anyone raise your hands high? Uh, the questions are about the film stock we chose for daylight and the time we had to shoot the movie for. The, shot, the movie was shot on 500, all of it. And yes, time was 40 days. We had 40 days. Thank you. Last question. Um, usually I don't do anything. <laughs> Meaning, <laughs> I do everything, but I don't do anything. Meaning that we do a lot of scouting, many scouting. Go back to the to location, look at the location again and again for different times of the day and stuff like that. But then I don't do storyboard. That's what I meant. I don't do shooting list. I don't do any of these. I know what I think I should get, but I can't completely know until I see the actual characters behaving in the place. So what is happening is that I do the blocking and then I can see how I want to frame it and I frame it and then we shoot. That's it. Well, another great movie based off of your love and intuition. And I just want to congratulate you. Thank and, you. Um, I have to say something and I'm not like being like, how can I say, um, try to be smart here, but I love directors. I mean, like it's the people I love the most. So I'm very proud that I'm here tonight with you guys. Thank you so much, Luca. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 